who were just kicking off, ESV has these really helpful tools. Uh, they're little booklets. They're like $3.99 or $4.99 or something like that on Amazon. They're these ESV booklets that have opportunities for journaling on each page. We just always like to put that in front of you guys if you'd like to grab a hold of one and kind of take notes along the way. Uh, it is very helpful if you're like me, the type of note taker I am. It's like half doodle and it's half writing and sometimes I can accidentally fill up the page really, really fast. Uh, so you've got to be a little disciplined in your note taking uh, depending on the pace in which we go. But that's something that's always available to us. Uh, we are in Romans uh, chapter 1. Oh, Keely also wanted me to remind you guys. So this information that, yeah, this information that we got from Mark and Marcy was awesome and helpful. There is other awesome and helpful information about other things that we're giving towards at Celebrate Generosity. You can either go through our app. If you have the app, it's a really easy link to there. Or you can go to Anthem, excuse me, CelebrateGenerosity.com, and you'll see uh, you know, 10 other stories and little clips in which you can hear about what we're actually giving toward. And so we are excited to be doing Celebrate Generosity, and we are looking forward to seeing how God is going to continue to take what is brought in and how it's sent out to help uh, reach and minister to those who are far, uh, either far away, far from God, or in desperate need. And so we're grateful. Okay, now, uh, we are in Romans. We are in our second half of the intro. We're taking our time on these first couple weeks. Uh, and we get to continue to grow and, and build off of where we were last week. Last week, Eric started us off and did a phenomenal job. Uh, and, and if you missed the, the big point of last week, it was... The gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus, changes everything. Intros and the start of letters are really important because they help give us a framework, a lens to read the rest of the letter through. It's kind of like, it drives me crazy because my wife does this, uh, but she will oftentimes read the end of a book to make sure that she'll like it. Uh, and she doesn't care if things are spoiled or anything like that. It drives me nuts. I do not like that at all. Um, However, it is helpful when we're reading scripture, actually oftentimes to read the first chapter and the last chapter, especially of epistles. It will help give you a framework because sometimes we can go off on launch pads and start interpreting things the way we want to interpret them. But generally speaking, for most letters, this is just kind of in the equipping category as you engage with scripture. So if you want to make sure you're not getting out into left field, read the first chapter and the last chapter. Uh, they will help get you into the mind of the author a little bit to understand where things are at. We are not doing that this morning, but I want you to know as we get going and rolling, I'm going to reference some things that are in chapter 15 uh, that might be helpful for us. Uh, but that is a helpful tool for us as we engage with Scripture. So this morning, we're going to continue to see how the gospel changes and impacts everything. We're going to look at three specific areas this morning. We're going to see how the gospel impacts how we celebrate, or how and what types of things we are to be excited about. We're going to see how the gospel impacts how we encourage one another, how we are to mutually encourage one another, and we're going to see how the gospel impacts and challenges and changes who we're obligated to. And so we're going to continue to dive in. Eric left us off uh, and, and reminded us that Paul is writing this letter to a group of Christians in Rome. This group is a hodgepodge, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But one of the things I love is that he's starting off by talking about how excited he is to preach the gospel to the church. <laughs> a 
which is so fascinating. Because they're already doing it. They are living it. They are seeing multiplication. They are seeing growth. And he continues to say, I still am excited to come to you and to preach the gospel. Yes, even to you who have already heard it. Because the same gospel that saved us, brought us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son, is the gospel that continues to inform every aspect of our life. And we want to continually grow in that. Eric did a great job last week sharing about all of these amazing men and women who have had their lives altered by Romans. And it's our hope that as we engage with Romans, that each of us will be altered as well as we continue to hear the beauty and power of the gospel of Jesus over and over again. So Lord, we come to you this morning. We present ourselves like you invite us in Romans 12.1 as a living sacrifice. We say, Lord, we are here. Bumps, bruises, freckles, warts, maybe even wounds or gashes. And we just come to you as we are, as your sons and your daughters, and say, Lord, we're here. We want to learn from you. Holy Spirit, illuminate your word. God, by your grace and spirit, would you work and speak through me. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 1, verses 7 through 15. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is that we may mutually encourage, or that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but have thus been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. All right. So like I mentioned, intros are important. They help set the tone for the book. And we're going to look at how the gospel changes a few different areas of our life. Starting by how the gospel changes how... Uh, we celebrate and, and, and can impact our excitement. Paul's excitement for Rome and the church is you can almost you can like hear it oozing out of the letter, can't you? There's like this this excitement, this this longing, this celebratoriness that's coming out of him. And I'm curious why we think there's why he's so excited. And, I, and there's a handful of things that I think are pretty cool here. First, like was highlighted last week, the church in Rome is one of the few that Paul is writing to that he hasn't actually visited or planted. This church is thriving and growing, and it's not because of the work that Paul is doing. The success of the church is not rest on Paul. The church is growing. Why? Because God is at work. And Paul is delighted in that reality. The gospel's moving forward without him. And we can tell that Paul is excited about this. 
he rejoices in this reality, and he's incredibly thankful. On top of that, the church is filled with Gentiles. The church is filled with non-Jewish people. Rome is a melting pot. It is the it is the hub. It's the largest city and most powerful city in the world at this point in time. People are flocking to Rome. It is the place where you want to be for business, for trade, for social status, all of these things. It is powerful. But this church has had a little bit of an interesting history so far, and it's very young. Like Eric talked about last week, the church is birthed primarily or most certainly because there were some Jews who were heading to Pentecost, to Jerusalem, and most likely during, maybe it was during the sermon that Peter's preaching that day, or it was afterwards as they watched and they saw the church begin to be formed as they came together, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, shared together all that they had, and Jesus, or the word says at the end of Acts 2, and God added to their number day by day those that were being saved, and there were over 3,000 people that day that came to know Jesus. It's most likely that there are Jews from Rome who had gone to Jerusalem, heard or seen the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, are radically changed, and they come back to Rome. There is no, we don't have any sort of apostolic covering or any major church father that has planted in or done any work in Rome up until this point. And so we have this church, and when I say church, we got to remember it's not like St. Peter's Cathedral or anything like that. What we're talking about is probably a number of small gatherings between, you know, 10 and 50 people at most that are gathering and, and people are coming to know Jesus. But in AD 54, a unique thing happened. There's this emperor, his name is Claudius, and he was getting really irritated with the Jews, and so he kicked all Jews, including Jewish Christians, out of Rome. And so at this point, the letter to Romans hasn't been written yet. Uh, Christianity is really pretty fresh up until this point. And so it would be a pretty big deal to have all of these Jewish Christians potentially kicked out of Rome at this time. Because, like many of us know, Christianity is birthed out of Judaism. It has a story that has been linked all the way back to Genesis. And so these stories are intricately connected. And then at AD 54, these Christian Jews are, are connected with those who are maybe not Christian Jews, they're just Jewish, and they are kicked out of Rome. This is fascinating because what then potentially starts happening, and we don't know the degree to how many Christian Jews actually left, but we do know some at least left. This is how Paul actually came to meet a couple that was very famous. Anybody know who that couple was? Priscilla and Aquila. Right, he met them in Corinth, and they are frustrated. They're irritated because they had just been kicked out of Rome. Why? Because Claudius kicked them out in AD 54. So we know that at least some Jewish leaders, Jewish Christian leaders of the house churches would have left. And so what that would do, it, was, it would have left a void. But what's fascinating here as Paul is writing in, there's this excitement because it doesn't seem as though even getting rid of the Jewish Christian leaders could stop the church from continuing to expand in Rome. Why? Because of the power and the beauty of the gospel. I think Paul is excited because he's writing into a church where it's not just been led and primarily championed by Jewish Christians, but they're seeing the next generation, people who may not have any Jewish descent at all, who are beginning to step in 
to a place of, of leadership, of, of shared responsibility. And Paul himself, his main call is to the Gentiles. And so he is excited to write into this church. And he talks about how their faith is proclaimed around the world. Are you kidding me? How? There's no, we don't have social media. We don't, like, there's no Twitter. Like, they got the Romans road, but that's like slow travel. And yet their reputation is going around the world of, of their faith. Paul's excited about what's happening. He's grateful. And one of the things I love seeing at this and with being able to have the rest of the letter in scope too, it's not that everything's perfect in Rome. Far, far, far from it. But I love that we see a glass half full guy who is not sitting here taking shots at all the areas perhaps in which the Roman church is missing it at the moment. He's first celebrating, rejoicing in who and what God is doing. You see, the gospel of Jesus gives us opportunity not to avoid the pain or to avoid the wrong, but to celebrate Jesus in one another. And Paul does this right here at the beginning. He's going to talk to them about issues that they're facing. But I love how the gospel in which Paul believes that we believe gives us opportunity to celebrate, to be excited about things without everything having to be perfect because he believes in the one who was perfect on our behalf. That's really good news. Paul's excited about the church in Rome. I do want to highlight it. This is fascinating, though. This is this is unique for Paul, not that he's excited about a church, but that he is so excited and passionate about going to a, a place that he wasn't the foundation layer, that he wasn't the first to go. This is actually somewhat unique, and there are some reasons why Paul is going to Rome. It's not so he can be the first to preach the gospel there, which has been his primary ambition. There are other things in which he's hoping to accomplish, and we'll talk about a few of those in a moment, but I, I want to highlight a couple just so you know, at the end of Romans 15, we get to see a few things that he is hoping for. One, he's hoping to get supporters and partners for a continued missionary journey into Spain. It's one of the reasons he's writing into the church. One of the other reasons he's writing into the church in Rome is he's wanting to connect them to a bigger story. He's wanting to make sure that they, not that they become Jewish themselves, but they don't disconnect from the importance of being connected to the body of Christ, which includes the church in Jerusalem, which is suffering and is poor. And he wants them to know that they belong to one another. And third, I will speculate a tiny bit with Rome being the hub of the world at this point, and the greatest place to travel from, having the greatest opportunity for travel, it's also going to be the place where people who are far from God are coming in. So it is a strategic outpost in order for people to hear about Jesus, come to know Jesus, fall in love with Jesus, and then be compelled by Jesus to go back into the foreign lands in which they've come from to continue to share the good news of Jesus. In this section, I want us to be reminded that the gospel changes kind of what we celebrate and how we celebrate or the things we get excited about. 
See, the gospel doesn't just change everything out there. It changes and can change even my affections, my celebrations, my excitements. And friends, we actually, I think there's a lot of work to do in this space as followers of Jesus in our day and age. Our culture is much, much more motivated by hot takes and scandals than they are about the good, beautiful things that Jesus is doing. And I know it might seem strange, but I think some of us need to seriously, seriously, seriously edit the content that we are ingesting. Because it's, I think for some of us, it's actually making it more difficult to celebrate the things that God is doing around the world. But yet we feel as passionate and disrupted. And we need to learn from Paul here. who cele- he does, It's not that he ignores the wrong. But he look, what can he sell? What can you celebrate? And what is true because of the gospel of who of Jesus? And also, some of us we don't hear stories. You're not on the Touch Nepal newsletter, and where you're getting to hear about these people who are coming to know Jesus, and about these pastors who are getting trained. Let's start filling our brains and our minds with some of the good, the beautiful, and the holy, like we learn about in Philippians. Whatever's true, whatever is holy, whatever's noble, whatever's excellent, whatever is worthy. Think about such things. But this is directly connected to where we're going next. And that's that the gospel makes it possible for mutual encouragement. It doesn't just make it possible. It empowers us for mutual encouragement. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual blessing, some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that you may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I love how Paul is coming into the church in Rome. He's not coming in as this domineering, incredibly authoritative, I'm better than you. He's coming in submissive, looking for mutual encouragement. We miss stuff like this, friends. We are so thirsty for some sort of power struggle, for some sort of hierarchical setting in order that I can tell you what to do and you could never tell me what to do. And yet from Paul, who met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he humbly comes in and he says, I am so excited to be able to spend time with each other because what's going to get to happen is I'm going to get to encourage you and you are going to get to encourage me. Almost like the way in which relationships were designed or something for a form of reciprocity or back and forth. And yet many of us have been so trained in some version of a culture where either I am the one that's receiving and the other person is the one that's giving, but there isn't this back and forth. The gospel makes it possible for mutual encouragement to take place between the smartest of the smart and the lowest of the low. And we'll look into this more in just a second. He says, I long to see you to impart some spiritual gift to strengthen them. Big picture, this is going to, the lens that we need as we go throughout Romans is that the gospel changes everything. Paul is going to talk about how the gospel will continue to impact all areas of our life. We're going to get to a place in Romans 12 where Paul is going to press in on these spiritual gifts that as followers of Jesus we have, which makes it possible for each of you 
and me to contribute toward one another, where we are given these gifts and, and that each one of us is incredibly valuable and are so important to the body that when we all come together and we use the gifts that we have, like we represent Jesus in a beautiful way, in a more complete way than we did if we were on our own. He wants to impart a spiritual gift to help strengthen them. He has a goal to strengthen them. I know it's silly, but do you or I, do we have goals to strengthen each other? Like, do we actually, like, is it part of my desire to strengthen you? Is it part of your desire to strengthen me? Or is it my job to strengthen you and it's somebody else's job to strengthen me? Or is it, how, how do we do this? You see, there's some errors in the ways of our thinking and our training of how mutual encouragement is actually to be done and who can do it. But the gospel of Jesus makes it possible for each of us to contribute one to another. Why? Because the same one who brought me out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved son is the same one who brought you out of the kingdom of darkness into the beloved son. And now each of us are full heirs in Jesus. Each of us. It's not that we are the same. It's not that we don't have different roles. But each of us are of equal value. And each of us are given the Holy Spirit who dwells within us in which we can share with one another. But I don't know that we always believe that. Not only that, I don't know how well we make ourselves available to be encouraged. Some of us, some of you, maybe got like a, we got a little bit of a wall up. I'm not really interested in being encouraged. And by the way, sometimes when I use the word encourage, a lot of people hear the word challenge, uh, which they are, that, that's, I think that's on purpose, by the way. Encourage and challenge, giving, encourage is to give courage. Well, what do you need courage for? We need courage for things that are challenging. But Paul, as he comes in, he believes that this is not a one-way street, that this is a two-way street. He is a part of a family. He wants to encourage. He wants to be encouraged. And I want to ask for you guys just, just really briefly, what keeps us, what keeps you, I, and I want us to share back and forth, what keeps us from doing that? What keeps us from encouraging one another and maybe receiving encouragement? What sort of things come to your mind when you hear me say that? What gets in the way? Okay, fear of conflict for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Do we even think about it? Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Too busy. You going to say something? Yeah. Yeah, so in that, are you saying, I don't want to speak up because I don't want somebody to encourage slash challenge me in these areas, or? 
Yeah. 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 That's good. I, and I, I think to piggyback on that, I hate that phrase, by the way. Um, but the flip side's true, too. Or we're painfully unaware that we actually maybe just bulldoze people. <laughs> so you can be on one side of the spectrum or the other. I think there's something so beautiful about this being the start of Romans for Paul and how he presents himself, how he brings himself in. I love it. Romans 12.1 is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture because the invitation is, Lord, here I am, mess and all. Use me how you want to use me for your glory. And yet either we're painfully aware of our own issues that we don't think I have anything valuable to say or valuable to contribute. And I would just say that is a lie from the enemy. The gospel of Jesus makes it so that you have actual eternal value to give and share. And we actually need to help one another draw that out of each other. We give space for our introverts and our extroverts and all that. Like, it's not, you are a valuable member of the body of Christ. And you have contributions to bring. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 5 that touches in on this. He says this, he says in verse 9, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. I think Paul would say the same thing for the church in Rome. Keep going. I want to be a part of it. But then he says, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who, are, who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Don't like that one. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. The gospel makes it possible for us to mutually encourage one another. Yes, we are sinners. None of us have fully arrived. However, if we are sons and daughters of the king and his spirit dwells in us, you have unending value and so much to offer. And you were made, we were made for this mutual encouragement. There are obstacles to this course first is pride if you don't think you need to be encouraged by anybody that's going to be an obstacle second would be fake humility third would be withdrawing from others trying to do this on our own maybe the last one that i i think we all need help with is 
uh, a great enemy to mutual encouragement, challenge, speaking truth, encouraging one another, is also um, quick to take offense. I wish I could remember the passage. It's in the Old Testament, which I know that's large and vague, so forgive me. Uh, but I, th- I found it so funny. There's a prayer to, uh, that God would give us thick foreheads. I'm like, that's weird. <laughs> but if you're anything like me, you're really, uh, if you don't know this about me, I'm pretty sensitive. <laughs> um, and my highest strength as I was coming into planting a church was on strength finders, if any of you do that. It was empathy. Um, and I thought, I'm dead. Like, I'm just, this is going to absolutely destroy me. People wanted somebody who wasn't like a hard driver and who was going to like run, not run over people, but that when I was getting into the church planting world, they were really looking for these super type A personalities who are willing to go this direction no matter what the cost. And I'm like, I don't know if you got the right guy. But you guys, I've realized that my quick to take offense has been one of the greatest obstacles from even my wife really loving me well. My quick to take offense has actually kept me from growing. It has kept me from trusting that you have the spirit of God dwelling in you and you could bring something to me that actually might encourage me and help shape me to be more and more like Jesus. Friends, we've got to learn to trust one another more. And I know that's a dangerous thing to be said because some of you have had trust broken and I'm so sorry And as we look to grow together, we will continue to hurt one another, but we need to depend on Jesus, and I will not cease to do what the Bible calls us to do, which is to mutually encourage one another for the edification of the body so that this world might know that Jesus Christ is Lord. But I want to do this together. And so some of us need a thick-er forehead. Maybe I'm just saying it to me. What was that? Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Next, the gospel, and we'll do this one quick, impacts obligation. This is so, this word that Paul uses here in verses 14 and 15, I am under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians, both the wise and the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This phrase, under obligation, is is fascinating. It almost sounds like bondage. It's like he is tied to, he's burdened by, he has to. Paul, because of the call God has put on his life, specifically to preach the gospel among those who've never heard it, or to Gentiles, he is under obligation. But why is he under obligation? It's because he's experienced the love and redemption, power and beauty of Jesus. One writer puts it this way, and if you're in your community groups, you guys talked about this a little bit. Obligation to him who died produces obligation to those For whom he died, I'll say it again. Obligation to him who died, that's Jesus, produces obligation to those for whom he died for. So Jesus died for us, but who also did Jesus die for? The world. For God so loved the world. I'm curious, and just for you to chew on, do you have obligation like that. Do you feel obligation for your neighbor? 
God a long time ago put on Mark's heart an obligation for Nepal. And he can't shake that. But that hasn't removed Mark's also obligation for his neighbor, those around. Do we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he actually died so that we might actually be made right with God and be set free from guilt and shame here and now? And if so, then the obligation we have isn't one necessarily out of duty, as 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, ought to be this obligation that's rooted in what? It's rooted in the love of Jesus, that the love of God might compel me, propel me forward to live out our life as ambassadors for Jesus' name. And finally, the gospel changes everything, including where we've come from. The gospel is for everyone. Here at the very beginning, he says, I'm under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians. This would drive the first century readers absolutely bonkers. They would not like this. Greeks are well-spoken. They are the social elite. They're not talking about natural Greeks, by the way. They're talking about Greek thought or Hellenistic thought. This is those who are superior. Greek was the way to be. Greek was the best. They were number one in the world. It was how you were to be successful. This is where social, trade, education, all of these places, they were just Hellenistic thought, Greek thought was the pinnacle. And barbarians were nothing more legitimately than slaves to serve the Romans. Frank Thielman says this, he says, For any upper class Roman among Paul's first readers, the thought of the apostle being under some obligation to barbarians must have seemed absurd. Barbarians were obligated to serve the Romans as slaves, as their ill-breeding dictated. For Paul, however, the gospel cut through all of this and leveled the social landscape. The gospel insisted that all humanity stood before God on equal terms. All had rebelled against him and all had received the free offer of a right standing and relationship with him through the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Paul's beginning to, at this moment and in the next two verses that we'll see in a few weeks, one of the, the main things Paul wants his li- listeners to understand, especially since Rome is such a melting pot of different cultures, races, and ethnicities. He's wanting them to understand that because of the gospel, we now need to have no distinctions between us. We need to have nothing that gets in the way. You being a barbarian doesn't prevent you from coming to know Jesus, and it doesn't prevent you from me being mutually encouraged by you. Me being a Greek doesn't give me greater standing in me coming to know Jesus or me being able to contribute in your life. Friends, we need this reminder just as much today as they needed it back then. As there are so many divisions within our culture of who can bring value, who is worth something, and it breaks my heart that that still exists today. 
I wonder if we were to bring this into our context, what would that look like? Who would be the Greeks and who would be the barbarians in our culture today? I don't want to answer that. I might start a fight. But what Paul, we will get into some of those things, but what Paul is saying is that the gospel of Jesus, it brings us all into equal playing field. And I love that, but one of the things I also love from Paul is Paul has an obligation to people as diverse as this, the Greek or the barbarian. I don't know. I don't think we're doing a, a, a super stellar job, perhaps, at filling the obligation toward the barbarian in our day. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what that, that person or that type might be in your life. The barbarians were the lowest of the low. In our culture, that looks different. It could actually be those who are poor and disenfranchised. It could be social outcasts. It could be a number of things. But how are we doing? That's saying you are made in the image of God. How are we doing at being mutually encouraged? by those that are different than us. I don't know if we're even taking the time to be with them. My hope is that God through his word and through the gospel of Jesus, we are being compelled, stirred, and challenged as we move forward. Worship band, you guys can come on up. As we wrap up this morning, I, I, I just want to remind us, are, are we connected to and excited about things that God has available for us to be excited about? Are we allowing the gospel to impact our affections, the things we get excited about, the things we celebrate? Again, a little bit of a (coughs) practical challenge. Make sure the news media or whatever you are reading or engaging, that you have something that is speaking into your life that is allowing you to rejoice, to celebrate the good things that God is doing. And to help curb that, stop reading all of the garbage, myself included. It is sad. I don't want to bury my hand with all the sad things that are going on. But my goodness, God is good and he is moving and he's doing great things. And we actually have the internet. We have not just the Romans Road where we can celebrate. Let's grow in letting the gospel help us celebrate the things that he's doing. Would you commit to mutually encouraging others? (laughs) I guess you can't commit to somebody else encouraging you, but you can commit to encouraging somebody else. I I know this is super, super silly, and I'm just trying to be, like, I just guarantee you, if you made it a point to encourage one person, one person, not because you're a nice person, but because Jesus has radically saved you. He knows you. He loves you. He calls you his own and he's made you his ambassador. If you made it a point to encourage one person a day, 
I guarantee you, your life would be drastically different. If you said, I, God, I want one person to encourage today. And then you stepped out and you actually did it. Whether it's a brother and sister in Christ or somebody who doesn't know, I just guarantee you, your life would change. And guess what? The things that you would begin to celebrate would also change. Finally, would the gospel propel us, challenge us, to be obligated to those who are very different than us? Would we believe that today, the gospel of Jesus can still break down all social, sexual, uh, Republican, Democrat, whatever the garbage is that we allow to separate us, would we believe that the gospel of Jesus can actually unite us? Would we believe that everybody on this earth has the same value because they are created in the Imago Dei? And would we as sons and daughters of the king reject the narratives that this world is saying that we have to devalue one another in order to thrive? That is not the way of the kingdom. The way up is down. And friends, I want to serve you and I want to serve our community not so that I might be touted as, oh, this great person, but so that we can point to Jesus and say, isn't he great? Isn't he great? Jesus, we 